Oh, hi. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. Uh, today, Stephanie and I are joined by Laura Portwood Stacer. Uh, Laura is a visiting assistant professor of media, culture, and communication at NYU. Um, her first book, which is called Lifestyle Politics and Radical Activism, and is rad, is about practices of cultural resistance among contemporary anarchists. And her current research is on something called media refusal, where um, media users actively reject specific technologies and platforms as a strategy of cultural and political resistance. Um, we're super excited to talk to her today. So we start out by interviewing her, then we'll address some questions that we've received from you. We have our quickies. Then, as usual, there will be a tour update and a song from Bonabana Bonabo. We're so thankful that you're uh, in this conversation with us. Please call us, write us, find us on the interwebs at sexforsmartpeople.com. Thanks. Our love is what we make of it. 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 Sex for smart people. That means you. Hey, welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Stephanie, and my preferred pronoun is she or they. I'm Dave, and my preferred pronoun is he. I'm Laura, and my preferred pronoun is she. Laura, we are so super psyched to have you today. Yay! Um, I think Stephanie and I were saying uh, on our way here that the only thing that we're upset about is that we like basically only have an hour, only have an hour. <laughs> and, have to, and, and are sticking to sex and sexuality because there's so much we want to talk to you about. Awesome. Um, uh, please, go ahead. What is your relationship to relationships? Yeah, so uh, like anyone, I have you know both personal and political and academic uh, relationship to relationships, but um, I just finished this book that is a study of people who have a very political uh, relationship to relationships. So I am trying to think about um, what relationships mean um, and how people... Um, see them as fitting into their personal identities and their political orientations and their activist projects. <laughs> will you just talk for a moment about yeah. the awesomeness of your book? Yes, I and will. And why people should read it. <laughs> yes. um, so I wrote this book, I wrote it for two audiences. Um, I wrote it for academics who are interested in sort of what it means that people are trying to make political interventions in their everyday lives within a context in which that kind of action is actually normative. Mm -hmm. We are all kind of urged to live our politics in our lives in almost this um, like creepy way where it's like you have to be recycling and you have to be buying these kinds of products or if you are eating junk food, you're an immoral person. Like, we're all kind of urged to do that in this in this uh, era that we academics call neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote it for people who are kind of interested in that phenomenon. But I also wrote it in the hopes that some activists would read it. And when I use the term activist, I think of you know almost everyone who's implicated by that discourse of lifestyle politics as an activist. Um, so it doesn't have to be only people who are like living in Zuccotti Park who I would want to read this. Um, and I'm sure they don't have time to read this. They're like off doing more important things than like <laughs> reading my book. Um, but I think anyone who kind of feels that imperative to live their politics, I hope that this book speaks to. And I hope it especially speaks to people who feel somehow that they have not done a good enough job at it. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a lot of pressure and shame and um, 
hierarchies mm-hmm. that emerge in activist communities around like who's the best activist and often mm-hmm. that means like who has the best quote-unquote best lifestyle um and i find that troubling especially because of who it often excludes mm-hmm. and what i saw and i'm not the first person to say this um in anarchist communities is that often women and people of color and queer people and poor people are the ones who maybe are not able to make certain lifestyle choices or don't want to make certain lifestyle choices because they have other concerns that are going on for them that are maybe more pressing than um, whether they are out as queer or something. Um, Or, you know, any other things that I talk about in the book, like riding a bike instead of driving a car or living in a commune instead of, you know, with just your nuclear family. Um, So... I really hope this book speaks to those people and that people recognize themselves in it and like have language and um, tools to uh, speak up for themselves, mm-hmm. I guess. Awesome. I also saw awesomely on your blog that you're re- trying to release this under a Creative Commons license. Yes. Yay. That you're yes. recording a free audiobook. Right. Very um, slowly. That, you know that the editing yeah, takes sure a long do. time. And that, um, if, if you, that you can get uncorrected galleys if you are using them for activist purposes, which you say, after reading this book, you can pretty right. much define activism any way you would like. Yes. To. Yeah. So it does have a Creative Commons license on it. Um, and my publisher tells me that it will be uh, posted to... They're going to have a Creative Commons platform. Um, that people right. will be able to download the book in PDF form or whatever form and read it for free. And I was not expecting to make any money off of this book, so I will not be offended if people <laughs> do not purchase it, but it is available for purchase. Um, but yes, the first uh, the first paragraph, I mean, the first chapter is available on my website as a PDF, and the first chapter is also available as an MP3, and I'm slowly working on the rest of the MP3s. Um, yeah, so it... While the language can be a bit dense and hard to get through, hopefully cost and material availability is not an issue for people. Right. Cool. Um, What was most surprising to you in your research and delving into this book? Um, I guess something that, I don't know if it surprised me, um, but it surprised people that I showed the manuscript to, was how much work people put into their lifestyles and their relationships and the choices they're making in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Um, how, I mean, I think for us probably here and probably for a lot of your listeners, we know how important our relationships are and how important the choices we make are and how significant they are to us. Um, but I think it was interesting to see that people really are willing to kind of put their lives on the line in, in a way to sort of, um, really try to live what they believe in. Mm. And it was interesting to see how far people were willing to go for that. Mm. And to, uh, in a sense, also reach for some sort of quantifying of impact that that living out has or doesn't? or You know, I don't know how interested um, the people that I write about in the book were in, were in finding a, a quantifiable impact. And I think one of the things that came out of the book for me maybe this was something surprising or something that I ended up with at the end of it, was realizing how many different kinds of impacts you could have. So maybe your overall goal is to sort of challenge heteronormativity, which we can talk about what that means in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
you know, also people have their own kind of personal goals. Maybe they want to just try and not, you know, live such an oppressive lifestyle or um, just have relationships that feel healthy for them. Maybe they want to just form healthy communities um, of other people who are also trying to work against I don't know, monogamy or the pressures of heterosexuality or masculinity or something. So people had um, all different things they were thinking about working on. And the I guess the, one of the surprising things or interesting things is how sometimes those different interests you have can be in conflict. How sometimes something you try to do for really personal or moral reasons can conflict with maybe your activist goals or the social communities you're in. Maybe you feel pulled in one direction by your family and in another by your activist comrades um, and in another by your own personal desires. Mm -hmm. So there was sort of a lot of struggle that was going on internally for people. Mm -hmm. I think I think I understand that a little bit just even in a small way that during activism it was social networks like Facebook and Twitter that were so useful in, in organizing but also that like I personally find the privacy policies on Facebook totally batshit crazy bad yes. and in a, in a vacuum would not participate at all and right. also know that that's the place where people go to find information right so where to draw the line between you know pursuing my personal desire to get things out to a public and my personal desire to not engage with shitty companies. Absolutely. So it is all about compromise. And it seems like figuring out where you're willing to make the compromises or where you strategically need to make the compromises seems to be a big thing for anarchist activists, all kinds of activists. And so I think it gets really interesting when you are looking at sexuality, Mm -hmm. where we feel like it's such an internally like driven thing. Like, how do you compromise that? So that's, yeah. Is it okay to jump back and say, and open this, and not only a can of worms, this swimming pool of worms and say, what, how do you, do you define heteronormativity? Yeah, so I think of heteronormativity as it's a system, it's a discourse, it's a kind of a, an ongoing social conversation in which heterosexuality is privileged and assumed to be the norm. Mm-hmm. And when I say norm... Not norm can be something that, you know, is statistically the norm. Like if you looked at a hundred people, you know, most of them would be converging around this one uh, thing, you know, like 90% or whatever number would identify as heterosexual. Mm -hmm. But a norm can also be, um, kind of a standard against which other things are measured as either good or bad. So you could say, okay, you know, maybe the norm is, um, heterosexuality and it would still be the norm even if 10% of the people were heterosexual. I mean, we think of, um, you know, the whole, the Occupy sort of 99% thing. Most people are not wealthy, but wealthiness is kind of the norm against which everything else is measured. Mm, Right. So, so when we say heteronormativity, um, it's just kind of a privileging of heterosexuality in which anything that is not that is seen as less than. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's clear or if, Totally. I think so. Um, And for those who um, whose identity is heterosexual but don't want to perpetuate heteronormativity in a damaging, dominant way, right? What what can be done? What to do? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I don't I don't know the answer to that. I think that is something that is very frustrating 
um, for people to try and work through. People who do have, who are privileged by the norm, mm-hmm. um, who don't particularly agree with the norm, but find themselves in a position to where they are kind of numerically supporting mm-hmm. whatever that statistical norm is. Um, and so I think the what can heterosexual people do? Well, I think it's, it's almost not even about what an individual can do because a norm is always um, kind of a macro thing, mm-hmm. right? One person cannot make a norm. A hundred people can't make a norm, mm-hmm. right? Unless you're talking about a norm within that community. Um, so it can be a very frustrating question. And I, you know, I don't know the answer about what one person could do. A norm is bigger than just one mm. person. And so I think we can't... Hmm, I don't like to hold individuals accountable for like, do you match the norm or not? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's intentionality, but with sexuality, it's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Well, and so a sort of side note to what can one person do? Uh, we have a question of like, what can one podcast do? Because actually we've sure. received some feedback mm-hmm. recently that we have not sufficiently addressed our privilege mm-hmm. in this podcast. Okay. Which we take far. very seriously. Take very seriously. Yes. And so we're doing a podcast about relationships and relationship models and not defaulting to a norm right and we're putting it on the internet which is not does not have universal access so how how would you say is the best way for us in doing something like this in a public venue to sufficiently address our privilege right um well i think there's like you know an infinite number of answers to that you could probably ask a lot of people and they would have different uh ideas i think for me, the thing a podcast can do, this is the reason why I would you know, agree to go on a podcast and why I think podcast and communication and media in general is interesting and good, um, is that while one person can't necessarily change a norm, I do think norms can shift when there is a new conversation, a new discourse, a new social um, understanding of what's happening and what should be happening. Mm -hmm. And so a podcast, by being able to reach a lot of people and can form sort of an audience community around it, you know, if you, you know, if you promote it well and bring people in and they feel like they're part of the conversation, I do think that can push for a discourse where different kinds of um, practices can be privileged other than just heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, So how can you address your own privilege? I think, listening to your audiences and what they want to hear, um, trying to imagine somebody other than yourself, right? As the ideal audience or as your ideal listener, um, thinking about how people from different situations have different constraints Mm -hmm. that act on what they're able and willing to do and recognizing that the, that can be valuable, the places that people are coming from. And I think a lot of times, this is just from my sort of academic uh, context, Um, you know, this is like a recurring problem in the academy is that like, oh, we wanted a panel of people to talk about sexuality and the only people we could find were white men or Mm -hmm. something, you know? Um, And so there's like, well, we wanted other people, but they didn't show up. And so... That's ignoring a whole, like, yeah. Inviting others to a table that's already set. Rather yes, than exactly. Being like, there is no table, or right, we'll right, or asking what kind of table might we want yeah. to have, or might you want to have? Um, 
what table can I show up to instead of, sure. well, I've got a table. Why aren't mm -hmm. people coming to my table? Right. So as far as addressing privilege, I mean, maybe promoting other kinds of podcasts that are out there um, or saying we're not the be all end all. Here's the other perspectives. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. that's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. I want us to keep thinking about that. And if you're listening and have other ideas about that, please do be in touch. Um, I'm curious, though, um, what lit the particular fire under you to study the things that you do right. specifically in relation right. to to sexuality and their uh, lifestyle politics and radical activism yeah the personal is the political and all that yes that. yeah so i certainly have a a personal struggle right i'm like trying to figure out what is the right ethical thing to do to go with my politics so my political identity for many years has been um, feminist and queer mm -hmm. as far as politics. And so I um, have been trying to figure out, okay, how do I live that, right? Or what's what's the right thing to do to address my own privilege in those ways? Or um, do I have a responsibility to speak up in certain situations or to not step forward in certain situations or whatever? Um, and so what lit the fire for me to study anarchism was that I saw that anarchists had a real conscious conversation about this. I think feminists do too, absolutely, and have a history of that. Um, but our sort of current moment of feminism is perhaps not as vocal about uh, how individuals can intervene other than like, oh, well, girl power or... Um, lean in or something, right? Um, I mean, obviously, I started writing this before the lean in thing happened, but um, I guess anarchism just seemed like a really vibrant place where conversations were taking place about this that I wanted to kind of delve into. Quick interjection, yes. can you please, what is anarchism to you? Yes, yeah. So uh, I think of anarchism, at, well, it's certainly a philosophy, it's a political philosophy about uh, resistance to hierarchical structures. Um, I don't want to say resistance to, I want to say uh, producing hierarchical structure or producing structures that are not hierarchical, mm -hmm. right? So creating um, societies and relationships that do not involve coercion or domination. Um, and that hardly exists anywhere. So anarchists often mm -hmm. find themselves resisting things that already exist. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they often get defined negatively, but really they're a very positive kind of utopian movement. Totally. I, I constantly wonder why this is so degrading. And it must be sort of framing it how you said it earlier. There's a hierarchical normativity. Yes. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. We all just assume hierarchy is the way things must be. Right. And there's mm -hmm. a whole litany of discourses that and ideologies that support that and naturalize that and make us think there aren't other alternatives. Um, and maybe the other alternatives wouldn't work, but we haven't really tried them very much. Most mm -hmm. people haven't. Plus, right? this one's not necessarily working either. As right, well as we right. When people are like, oh, but anarchism wouldn't work. It's like, well, capitalism is not working for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we define we each define as relationship anarchists, which ah, I'm, okay. I'm aligned with your definition there, that it's not about combating anything right. in as, as much as it is about looking at the world and creating the world that we would like to see through yeah. um, creating vocabulary within each relationship and connection. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I think you could be a, an anarchist in many different realms, relationships being one and of them. And I think I, I, when I interjected, I, I derailed you a little bit. I'm oh. sorry. You were saying what, what lit the fire under you to study this in the first place? Oh, yes. Did I define anarchism enough? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, I think <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. So anarchism is a political philosophy that... Uh, you know, exists out there, but also exists actually among people. There are people who identify as anarchists and there are communities that identify as anarchists. And I was particularly interested in the subculture of anarchism, that it's not just a political identity. People don't just like go to the voting booth and vote anarchist and then go home and do whatever. <laughs> like it is through and through in people's lives. And I think feminism and queer politics are the same way for people. I think they really feel that it is their whole, not their whole identity, but a big important part of their identity. And so it defines not just what you do in the quote unquote public sphere or the political sphere, but in all spheres. Um, and so because anarchists are so committed to that, I just thought they would, they're a great site to really pursue that. Hmm. And they're doing some very interesting projects as I found out once I started studying mm-hmm. that. Cool. Um, there are so many directions that I would love to go. Um, I think so much about this idea of the personal versus the political. Yes. I'm so drawn to your work and was so thrilled to, to come across your book. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping you, I can point you toward a point just to talk a little more yeah. about it. Um, in your book, you quote Diana Fuss as saying yes. the personal is political, reprivatizes uh, social yes. experience to the degree that one can be engaged in political praxis without ever leaving the confines of the right. bedroom. And, um, and then you say, uh, following that, it's arguable that personal acts may have political significance in the sense that they carry political meaning, but that doesn't necessarily ensure their efficacy in uh, radically subverting systems of domination. Uh, There's no necessary relationship between gestures that are meant to represent a desire for subversion, like calling oneself queer or calling Mm -hmm. oneself polyamorous, um, and actual subversion of network of power, for example, overturning heteronormativity. Right, right. Um, Can you tell me what page that is? Sure, it's on page 122. Okay. Yes. So would you like me to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess this kind of gets at what I was saying earlier that um, there are many, many reasons why people would claim the title of queer or claim um, a polyamorous relationship structure or say that that is their ideal. Um, and I think that some of those some of the effects of that can be seen and observed. And, you know, maybe you feel personally empowered by it. Maybe it helps you meet other people that you want to meet or enter into relationships that you want to enter into that bring you pleasure. Um, maybe it helps you tap into a community that you want to relate to. Um, maybe it uh, is just something that is uh, inspiring to somebody else or to you know someone younger than yourself or someone um, who needs a a role model to look up to. Um, So there are many, many valid reasons uh, why being open and um, uh, claiming these labels is important. However, um, kind of what I was talking about earlier that one person alone does not change the norm, right? There has to be a shared discourse um, 
that is shared both by insiders and understood by outsiders, mm -hmm. right? And not either illegible or just completely dismissed. Um, and so I think that, well, definitely what Fuss is arguing is that people say, when people say the personal is political, sometimes they mean um, everything I do in my personal life is influenced by my politics or it has political implications. Um, or it's structured by larger political structures. And that is absolutely like inarguable. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we all would agree with that. Sometimes people, when they say the personal is political, they're saying, well, everything I do, if it's informed by politics, it makes a political difference. Mm -hmm. And that I'm not... That's a separate... I'm not thing. sure, right? Um, I think it can, like how I was saying, uh, if it can start a conversation, it can if it can really travel beyond the individual... Yeah, mm -hmm. I think certainly like celebrities have a lot more power in that sense that what they do really does travel. Mm -hmm. If only you see that um, that sexuality or that identity or only the people you sleep with see it, it could still have very important political significance for you or, and personal mm -hmm. significance for you. But I'm not sure how much it intervenes in the systems. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Does that? So... Yeah. You know, I've seen. I think I talked about this in um, in this chapter that you're quoting here. That people say, you know, every time we have queer sex, we win. Mm. Um, and it's like, yes, you win in the fact that nobody was able to stop you from having it. Mm -hmm. Like, good, yeah, good. You were able to get what you needed. Right. Um, does it win more um, empowerment for all queer people, or does it win healthcare for you know, poor queer people? No, maybe not, right? Mm -hmm. I was just in Seattle in conversation with Alina Gabosh, who's the head of the Center for Sex Positive Culture okay. there, and something that she said that really challenged me in a good way that I'm wondering your perspective on is she's trying to change the conversation by actually not using the term alternative. Yes, okay. This whole, we, we talk a lot about challenging norms or, mm -hmm. or all, and, and I've thought a lot about this, but something in the way that she said crystallized this for me is we've, that in our mission statement that we, we celebrate mm -hmm. remembering that it's okay to think about alternatives mm -hmm. and, but, but even the very notion of, of there being something alternative, to alternate from. Yeah, then right. that's like, wait, but everybody's sexuality is normal for them. Mm -hmm. And, um, I guess, so this I, I ask in a, in a macro level, but also it's a personal query for me and for us as we're thinking about the the mission of this podcast and when in terms of talking about alternatives, yeah, what are ways that we can do that that doesn't um, perpetuate dominant structures in a right. harmful way? Right. Um, again, I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> you don't know um, everything. Oh, I'm just worried about what other people think the answer might be. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that that is a shared concern that the whole idea of an alternative not only reinforces um, an alternative to what it reinforces the what right it says well that's the norm and whatever you're doing is like just an al alternative um, it's another choice you might make but I think it also very much reinforces the idea that it's a choice you might make just like you might make a choice to listen to alternative music right or shop at an alternative store or something mm -hmm. like it it really 
like alternative is kind of now the language of like lifestyle niche marketing mm. and you know everyone has their own norm and that's okay because we'll go sell them something that right. appeals to mm. their norm um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's what that language of alternative does kind of get people's goat a little bit because it makes it seem like well this is just as good it's just another choice you might make but in fact i think like a sex positive activist to say like, no, actually sex positivity and sex negativity are not just like two choices on a continuum. <laughs> it's like, no, actually we need this one sex positivity because it liberates more people from, um, you know, the repression and oppression that sex negativity negativity introduces into society. So what is, how, what, what does it mean to be sex positive? Well, um, yeah, <laughs> I think so. I always, so when I, when I teach this, I, my go-to, uh, gal is Gail Rubin, mm-hmm. um, who, uh, talks about sex positivity. I don't know if she uses that term, but she, can I just dive yes, in? Yes. Sex positivity is not everyone should be having all the sex of ever right. with everyone. Absolutely. It is not a common yes. misconception. It is not that. Dread. <laughs> Unless you really want to, and it's all consensual, and then awesome. Right. <laughs> I think it's, it's um, well, again, since we live in a sex-negative society, we have to think about sex positivity as like a, um, a resistance to that. And mm-hmm. I think sex negativity is assuming, like in the absence of other evidence, that sex is a bad thing, mm-hmm. or that it's an immoral thing, or that it introduces problems, instead of assuming the opposite. Can we go so far as to define sex as like sexuality in general oh. that includes like having how you a physical about, body, having a physical body, how you right. feel about it, not just like sex with partners or sex. Right. Yeah. That's a very deep question. How would we define sex? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. We think of the days. <laughs> yeah. This is for smart people after all. <laughs> it's in the title. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, I'm, Yeah. So I think, yeah, I would think of it as sexuality. It's really kind of sexuality, negativity, or positivity, which doesn't, you could be sexual and have, everyone has a sexuality and it may not involve ever having what we call sex, Mm -hmm. right? So it, even, you know, sex itself kind of privileges the idea of what we, what our culture has said, this counts as sex Mm -hmm. and this doesn't, or this is the safe thing that's not sex or the moral thing that's Mm -hmm. not sex or the clean thing, whatever. Okay, on to your questions. And so first, as we introduced the last time, a question that we're not going to discuss today, but we'd love to throw out to all of you um, and ask for your feedback. Um, So the second ever crowdsource question is... what's the theme song? Oh, crowdsource crowdsource question! question. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) So good. Um, It is... uh, So if you... uh, have a response to this question please write us or call us by christmas and then we will uh include as many responses as we can uh two episodes from now um it's the 25th of december is that right indeed okay indeed the the, the day after my birthday. birthday um so here's the second ever crowdsource question i've been with my boyfriend for two years now and we keep falling more and more in love with each other Overall, things are great, but I've noticed that lately my sex drive is significantly less than what it was when we first got together. He still wants to have sex pretty frequently. I feel like doing it sometimes, but not as much as he does. We've talked about it, and he's okay with this imbalance, but still I wonder, is there something I can or should be doing to keep my level of desire for him where it once was? 
So any responses to that, call us, write to us. We would love to hear from you and have you in this conversation as well. Um, That's our question. Yeah. All right. Dave, will you read the first question for today? Our first question uh, is, I'm a non-monogamous guy. I'm closeted about my open relationships at work. On the one hand, I want to be out and advocate for my lifestyle, but it also feels like it would creep people out by injecting an unnecessarily sexual topic into my professional conversations. Like if I went around telling all my coworkers that I really like to jerk off to pictures of women in stockings or something. Where's the line between an identity that you should be out about and a bedroom practice that you should be discreet about? I'm Oof. super excited to ask this here because of how much how much research you've done into the political and the personal. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So I really try to never use the word should. Um, Yay. <laughs> just because I think there's different shoulds for different goals and different uh, aims. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that you might have personal reasons for something, but you might also have political reasons for something. You might have activist reasons, you might have social reasons. Um, and so it sounds like the non-monogamous guy who's writing in is trying to deal with those kind of conflicting motivations. He's, you know... Politically, he wants to stand by uh, the community that he feels a part of, the polyamorous community. I'm reading between the lines. Sounds Mm -hmm. like he Mm -hmm. feels that way. Um, But socially, he realizes that that might not come across as an appropriate topic to some people. And so I think it's not a question of should, but for what purpose should he do should he come out or not so Mm -hmm. if his goal is to really just get along with people and not offend them then he should probably not say anything right but if it if he finds that it kind of outweighs that social concern to be more activist and out there then he should be out but yeah i would never say that you should do one or the other this is a hard one because it comes back to heteronormativity and, and, right. and monogsy normativity, right? Which is that sort of, I, I remember hearing something like, you know, when parents know their kid is straight, they don't think about sex. But when they know their kid right. is gay, they mm-hmm. think about sex. Right. Though people know you're dating one person, they don't think about sex. But when they know that you may be dating two, they do. Right. But I also think it's important to point out, as you do in your book, that one can identify politically as polyamorous and only have sex with one person for Absolutely. the rest. Or, or have sex with no... Or be asexual and have sex with no people their totally. whole lives. Right. I think... That's just a complication of all this, but yeah, absolutely. Which is mm-hmm. which you know my, uh, I, I was in a I guess it wasn't a, a, a totally normal office, but in all the nor- like relatively normal office jobs that I've had, I've been out about being polyamorous, and it's weirded some people out. And um, I've I, I've been I mean I'm lucky and privileged enough that that didn't affect my job status, right? That I was working for for organizations that didn't hold that against me, despite the fact that some of my colleagues didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that has to come into the equation that, that what is, you know, are, are you in a position where being out about this is likely to affect your ability to have right. a job, to keep your job, to keep your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unfortunate and distressing that that is something that has to be part of the calculus, but I think it does. And I think there's so many misconceptions around all versions of queerness and all versions of sexuality that because my my initial instinct was this well like no need to like 
broadcast it or put it on a sign, but if it easily comes up in conversation, which it right. does, people talk about their families, then then you can contextualize it and you can say, this is what it means to me and, and right. this is how it relates to my identity and my practices. But I also want to acknowledge that I know it's not that easy because we can't control how a frame that we give to someone then gets out because you could have yes. a, such a such a considered and considerate and full rich conversation with the coworker and even if they really grok what you're saying they might hang on to um, some misconception or even just the, state the term polyamorous to somebody else who has a misconception and then that kind of thing could I think it's so unfortunate it could spread like wildfire and then um, potentially have an adverse effect on yes. yeah. this person's career. Uh, I don't know from this question exactly what it is. Yeah. But, um, that that's how I get tangled. completely depends. Like, right, which is, the right. Same, which is where you started to. Where this, yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that, if I could just uh, jump on one yeah. more, um, one of the things I try to talk about in this book, I'm a communication scholar. So I always think about, okay, there's the framework in which you create a message, and there's always the framework in which that message is interpreted right and so we unfortunately do not get to determine either the framework in which we're coming from because we're coming from kind of an ideological perspective or what other people are going to see so often it is a calculus of figuring out are they going to be able to interpret my non-monogamy as non-creepy or are they going Mm -hmm. to interpret it as creepy and if they are going to interpret it as creepy can i do anything to shift their framework and so, like you say, if it's people you know well enough that you can really sort of explain the context and they'll get it, maybe that's a good move. Yeah. And yeah. I would like to live in a world where we could all be open about every part of our identity. Right. And right. I do see, you know, the more people who are out about any, I don't want to, not alternative, but right. not, <laughs> not dominant structure. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I have to think about how I talk about these things. But um, the, the, uh. the easier it is for, for others to... To not feel conflicted as right. this yeah. person does, but um, so question two: yeah. Do we have free will? Just kidding. <laughs> 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 um, oh, real question two. Um, we'll come back to that. <laughs> oh yeah, I've been reading oh, slightly too. Um, there's there's been all this talk lately about women not having orgasms in the context of casual hookups. But I'm wondering, sometimes I just want to roll around with someone and not worry about it. But then, am I letting guys off the hook too much? Do you think it is ever okay, as a feminist woman who is very able to have orgasms in general, to be okay with not coming in the context of a hookup? I want to subvert heteronormative practices in and out of the bedroom, but I don't know. It takes me a long time for me to have an orgasm with a new person, and sometimes I feel like it's not really worth the trouble. Should I? I, will, I can uh, you can, weigh you in. Can. <laughs> sure. Go for um, so I guess I have, again, I would never say, is it okay as a feminist that you're doing this? Or yeah. you're, it, it, that's not okay if you're a feminist. Because um, I don't think that is what feminism is, is about. Um, and, I, you know, although I don't like the word should, I don't think it should be what activism is about, mm-hmm. is telling people their personal preferences are okay or not okay. Um, so... I think um, there. Okay, so there's there's a couple things going on here. First, the very idea that an orgasm is the end goal of a sexual encounter or relationship can be deconstructed as like a masculinist mm. 
position to take. Mm. So it kind of, it already is coming from this position of like, here's the table we set where this uh-huh. dinner ends with an orgasm, right? I so, love the yeah. antidote pers- uh, frame to that of uh, pleasure oriented rather than orgasm focused. Yes. Yes. As a, as a, as a way of framing. Yeah. So I would say if this uh, woman who is writing in, who's a feminist is getting pleasure out of rolling around and you know, good for her. Like why should she feel pressured to have an orgasm? Um, if her goal in meeting people and hooking up is to have orgasms, then well, maybe she should speak up right? <laughs> or seek, seek orgasms elsewhere. And she's doing it. But, um, but yeah, again, it's like, well, what's your aim here? And if your aim is to use sex as a way to have like a, a connection with somebody and a, or a fun night and the orgasm is not your concern, then I think a feminist position would say that's okay. What if we broaden the question out a little bit too and talk about orgasms in the context of longer term relationships, not just in casual hookups? If yeah. if you're in a... Go on. Go ahead. Okay. If, if you're in a, a longer term relationship and one or the other partner is not... Is is not experience or experiencing orgasm and is unhappy about that. How do you bring that up? How do you fix that? Is that a problem? Oh, I mean, well, I want I want to get a little blunt and persnickety here. <laughs> that like I really ultimately agree with you that there's no should and that that the the the, the questions that you asked are are where um, it's good to be sitting. But I also do think that still even in this day and age. Like I love that this person says, "Am I am I letting guys off the hook?" Uh-huh, like there's right. some consciousness around um, female orgasms still can be misunderstood right. and not cared about it enough. And yeah. I I love that there's a consciousness around that. Um, and I I do think that uh, just from from people that I know or have encountered, there's there's still a reluctant like there's still a lot of people think it's weird like to touch yourself also in an orgasm mm-hmm. in in a uh, in an orgasm or any encounter with with another person, and I think that's that's an idea that I would like to normalize more. And um, I think in casual hookups, maybe women who normally come with with a vibrator and mm-hmm. do have a desire to have an orgasm in the context of this hookup may feel uh, for some may feel strange or awkward about yes. bringing the vibrator into the mix. And I think. And like guys will see. often make them feel strange. Yeah. Like, it's and not so, coming out of nowhere. Yeah. So I would like to see more. They should stop. <laughs> yeah. I do feel, I do feel yeah. a little bit yeah. righteous about this point, yeah. even though I'm, I, guys, I'm feeling righteous. Stop it. But yeah, but like, but, but, um, if, if you, if you are, um, truly feeling like no big deal, orgasm, no big deal in context right. of a hookup, great, cool, and, and that's that's honest to you, and, and roll with it. But if you're frustrated with this, I think whether in the context of a hookup or a longer-term relationship, um, to feel empowered to, if you don't already, um, to talk more about what works for you before this mm-hmm. encounter or in this long-term thing, and, and be okay with touching yourself uh, uh, in a sexual encounter, celebrate, yay, bring your vibrator in the room if that's what you normally do. Um, and I think, um, I think also still, it's really common for women to feel like they're like taking too long. Like if it, right. even though I agree, I mean that that's that worry stems from like a masculine fo- focus. Like let's mm-hmm. get to let's mm-hmm. let's get to this this end. But um, I just 
I love, I just was rereading um, the She Comes First by Ian Kerner, mm. but, um, A Thinking Man's Guide to, to Pleasuring a Woman, and um, in the, the answer that he gives to how long should an orgasm take, and he says the answer is as long as it takes, mm-hmm. and he said, but to throw a number out there, 15 to 45 minutes, but a lot of people are like, 15 to 45 minutes, mm-hmm. so um, I realized in talking about this, I'm... I am perpetuating the orgasm-focused mentality in a way, but if if that's where you're coming from, maybe some of those things are useful. But yeah. um, ultimately, I I agree with where Laura started with um, what are you in it for, and right. can we shift to a frame that's pleasure-focused in general? Um, How I just went on a diatribe. I just went on a diatribe, but I didn't address the long-term thing as deeply <laughs> as I could have. Um, do you guys have thoughts on that? I mean, I post. I think I posed a really good question. <laughs> um, uh, um, you know, as part of our um, idea of talking about things, I think that. Um, well, I think. I think. Yeah, I think. I, I. I. I hope that in a long-term relationship, if one or the other partner, or how one or the other, or the other or the other partner isn't isn't reaching orgasm and wants to, that they feel comfortable talking about that and finding a way to do so. Um, Personal, that can be hard. Yeah. That can be a hard thing to bring up. Yeah. Um, because there is this sense, even like, I need to bring a vibrator into bed, that the other partner will feel that they're it failing somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead of, it's an extension of them. Right. That's just the best <laughs> and, and, and it makes me sad. The, the idea that there can, that anybody would f- feel failure in an encounter right. meant to, uh, meant to be, uh, bringing joy to the people involved in it. Um, I, can you say that thing again you said about orienting toward pleasure-oriented pleasure? rather than orgasm-focused? I think that's beautiful. I, I, I would like... I, I, I'm I going to steal that. Is that a It's that's not mine. I need to look it up. I, I will post everywhere. <laughs> who I will give an attribution. I forget who said it right now, but okay. I can't claim it as my own. But. Yeah, that's gold. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I endorse that whole. And that might also be Ian Kerner from She Comes First, but I need to double check that. Cool. Yeah. I say aim for that. Good good luck. We're all counting. <laughs> Other thoughts from you, Laura, and long, uh, long term? Yeah, so I think the what you said about well what what both of you said about like empower yourself to have that conversation, that can be very hard, right? It's like where does that empowerment come from? And I think podcasts like this might be part of where that empowerment comes from that creating a social discourse where people do feel like it's okay like maybe all the guys they've dated make them feel like it's not okay but they realize there's actually you know hundreds of thousands of women out there who do think it's okay and guys too who do think it's Mm -hmm. okay and maybe discursively conversationally we can kind of shift the norm or the expectation and maybe help people speak up about it even with long-term partners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Excellent. Great. Um, let us go to, I'm a woman and I am attracted to women, but have never had sex with a woman. Queer friends of mine tell me it can be frustrating to date women who are mostly straight, but looking to experiment. That makes me feel like I missed the boat. I know that's not true, but I'm not sure how to begin. Hmm. Um, I can dive in with this one. Um, I really, I, I was there. <laughs> I've been there. Um, but um, on the one hand, I think that 
that it is true. I have experienced people, I've encountered people and, and read about people who um, who do have this sort of knee-jerk reaction about not wanting to like walk anyone through their steps of sexual discovery that can take a lot of patience and get old. And I think I think that I celebrate um, uh, online social dating networks and think they're often awesome. But I think for this person's scenario, that may not be hmm. the the best if you're if you're seeking out. Um, uh, these kind of first ex- experiences, um, because I think it can seem uh, right off the bat like a booty call that may be unwelcome. Mm-hmm. But um, I also think that that social da- dating sites are great because you could put that out in the open that that's where you are, and if that's someone's exactly reading about the thinking. whole picture of you, and also this is part of the picture of you, and is into that, then you know that like that's already in the clear, and that's something that I think is awesome about things like OkCupid. Um, and also, I think um, there's also a thing to like if there are people that you know are already friends with them, there might be sparks with. I feel like even if they wouldn't in general like to someone online uh, want to um, want to be with someone who was less experienced in that way, but might be into it because they know you. Yeah, it's worth exploring. I was going to say exactly the second part of why online uh, sites might be good because it is you do get this weird like fuller picture of the person even though in some mm-hmm. ways you're getting a less complete sure. picture at least you can put that right out there right, right? and if people don't want to hear it and don't want to be that person for you they don't have to talk to you uh-huh. right um, and I think there are absolutely queer women who don't aren't interested in like converting the straight woman I think there are people who are turned on by that <laughs> and who like, that's what they like and that's totally. an experience mm-hmm. they would want to have. So mm-hmm. you just have to find those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I found that's, that is, that is one of the wonderful things that the internet has brought to us that there are these things that are perhaps not assumed in the culture that, um, that you can put that out on front street and there's probably somebody out there who's going to be into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's still, you're still digging, but, um, you know, there's a possibility of uh, striking gold. I followed that metaphor through all the way. Yeah, <laughs> you did. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Um, um, I would say you haven't missed the boat. You have not missed the boat. Yeah, missed the boat. You haven't missed the boat. Um, especially, especially not if you're willing to also be that person for somebody else, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, I'm sure you're not the only one. So maybe you guys can can, uh, can hook up and roll around together, and that'll be that'll be fun for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, cool. you haven't missed the boat. The boat hasn't left yet. The <laughs> yes. boat's in, in port. Keep keep going. going. The boat. The boat's actually not <laughs> really? seaworthy. Really? What else? Tell us more. You should about probably this just boat. swim. Just just dive in and go. You can walk. You can actually walk on water. <laughs> you are Jesus. You you are. Jesus. <laughs> That's the answer. I, I had no idea that Jesus was emailing us as extra smart people. <laughs> but thank you, and uh, we appreciate everything. <laughs> I think there is a long history of lesbian <laughs> relationships emerging later in life uh-huh. and uh, for women for various reasons, some of which are economic. You know, you often, uh, you know, our economic structure privileges a male paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. So women have often not felt that they were free to pursue a, a lesbian relationship and came to mm-hmm. it later on when they were a little more solid and they had already mm-hmm. been married. Um, so I, I would agree the boat has not been missed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that this part um, of never having experimented with a woman is just 
one part of your whole awesomeness yeah. and that, that, that's, that finds somebody who, who sees that. Right. So here we go. Quickies. Um, Laura and I have Jesus related ones. <laughs> it just <laughs> occurred to me. It was divinely inspired. Uh, do you want to go first? Sure. Inspired. So, well, I think, I think you might, your quickie might be plugging my book. I'm going to do that too. But I'm going to plug someone else. Uh, no, any kind of pun or anything intended there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a colleague at, <laughs> at New York University named Zeb Tortorici, who has come and spoken to my queer identity and popular culture class about his research on um, uh, the history of the Inquisition in Latin America, the Spanish Inquisition in Latin America, um, in which women were um, sort of taken before the the um, you know the commission or whatever it was for their uh, blasphemous sexualizing of Jesus Christ and their the sexual fantasies they had about them and the saints uh, and his so his research and if you ever get the opportunity to hear him talk about it is extremely interesting um, especially because the Catholic churches are the people who uh, recorded these women's mm-hmm. fantasies and if you read it it's like erotica about mm-hmm. Jesus. Um, but they recorded it because they were like subjecting them to the Inquisition, right? And uh, saying you are beyond redemption or whatever. Um, so I what's get, the title of the book? And then I'm not again. sure what the book is or if there's a book yet. But his name is Zeb Tortorici, cool. uh, and he's a very interesting. Guy. It's a hardcore name already. Yeah, oh, yeah that's good. And yeah. if if you Google Zeb Tortorici and hardcore, you might get some interest. <laughs> we should all try it. Endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I want to sneak in an extra quickie, which is to plug what Laura's book for. again. <laughs> what? That's what they're there for? I know. I know. <laughs> no. Um, um, so, lifestyle politics and radical activism by Laura Portworth Stacer, our amazing guest today. You should totally all read it. Um, I really, really dig it. And um, the other, I just thought of another Jesus-related quickie, which I want to do <laughs> as well. Um, when we were one of our last stops of the Bana Bana Bonobo tour, Love Songs for the Rest of Us, was in Jackson, Mississippi where we played for this group of about 12, uh, 12 lesbians, mostly couples, who um, two of whom are pastors at this church mm. called Safe Harbor. They were some of the most amazing people I've ever met, and it was um, so interesting to talk with them and talk about what it means to, to hold space for queer community in Jackson, Mississippi, and how yeah. that's a different thing than maybe in New York or Seattle or something. But... Um, in the context of that concert, I was actually thrown off so much I couldn't continue for a few minutes when I learned um, that this singer, Ray Boltz, who when I, I was my father's an evangelical minister, and when I was, uh, when I was younger, my favorite Christian oh, wow. evangelical musician was Ray Boltz. And now I listen back and I'm like, oh, there's synthesizers and all these soaring melodies. And, but I really dug it, like from ages 8 to 12. He was <laughs> so my hero and we saw him in concert. He recently came out as gay, wow. and so many people know this, but I didn't. And I actually like I started crying, and I because just thinking about the impact that he had on me as a child, and what, he's just a superstar in the evangelical community, but that he's in such a unique position now, and he just released a new uh, a new album, which um, which our new friends Amber and Jessica gave me a copy of. Um, it's called True. 
and it um, there's there's songs like Who Would Jesus Love? Wow. There's songs like um, Don't Tell Me Who to Love, um, American Queen, which talks about a drag queen, and it's still in the style of his um, like 1990s um, pop evangelical music, which wow. isn't everyone's taste, but. Um, he's just in such a unique position to speak to such a unique community. And it really moves me to think that he felt comfortable being open about who he is and the, the way that that can empower other people to potentially do the same because of the, the loud microphone that he holds within that community and his family stood by him. And it's just, it's so incredible and moving to me. Right. Um, mine is um, something that may or may not be called Huga. It's a word in <laughs> Danish, which I don't speak. It's uh, spelled uh, H-Y-G-G-E, which is apparently a part of Danish culture, which is... Um, Huga? He, maybe Huga. Huga? That is the, uh, the feeling of warmth and togetherness mm. you get by relaxing with people you love. Oh. That's an emotion. Very Thanksgiving appropriate. Very Thanksgiving appropriate. <laughs> and... You know, the, nas- the national religion of Denmark is Lutheranism, which is Christian, so it's Jesus-related, so I fit right in. But yeah, so um, uh, aiming for this, or ha- giving a name to this emotion of the sense of pleasure and contentment and warmth you get from being near the people you love is something that I really, really like. That's yeah. so gorgeous. Way to go, Denmark, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. Well, I'll, I'll work on it. Sorry to all of Denmark. <laughs> sorry, Denmark. <laughs> You're doing good work out there. Thank you for running Greenland. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Greenland. I don't realize you're in a famous country. (laughs) Hey everyone, this is Jillian from Bonabana Bonabo. We are back in New York City. We just wrapped up our two-month tour uh, traveling across the country, playing music and facilitating conversations about love and sex and family and relationships and a whole bunch of other things we didn't even know we were going to talk about um, in people's living rooms all across the country. And it was an incredible experience. We met so many new people, got a chance to see old friends, um, got a chance to start thinking about and working on new songs that are informed by the conversations we had with people. And we'll be recording the album of those new songs as well as the ones that we were playing on this tour this spring. And then we are planning on going back out on the road and we're hoping to take this show to college campuses across the country. So if you are affiliated with or attend a university or college who you think might want to be in conversation with us, we would love to know that. So please get in touch with Stephanie and let us know. Um, And before we go, we just have one more song for you from the tour. It's a simple love song. you do to me You shook me up and shaken I have stayed I should be terrified but I'm so happy to revel in this good thing we have made I know and you know that love does
doesn't mesh with domestication. I know and you know that change is the only certain thing. I trust that in this rare and bright connection, we're stronger when we take things day by day by day. We're stronger when we take things day by day. I know I'm so goddamn lucky that you love me. You're also pretty lucky I love you. I don't believe in fate, so it's not easy. I admit that I hope it's not over too fast. I've not always been this at peace in the past. I admit that my heart ignites when I think of a future with you. Oh, I know and you know that love doesn't mesh with domestication. I know and you know that change is the only certain thing. Let's trust that in this rare and bright connection. We're stronger when we take things day by day by day. We're stronger when we take things day by day. So that's it for this episode, and um, we really value hearing from you at any time. Please let us know your thoughts, your objections, any questions that you would like us to address on upcoming episodes and subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. We're so thrilled, as always, to be in this conversation with you. And if you would like to write in about that crowdsource question, please be in touch by December 25th. And on our next episode, we have the fabulous Twana Hines, who I met recently at the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit. She is an award-winning educator, sex advisor, columnist, TV and radio commentator. She's focused on the sociology of sexuality and its relationship to culture and internet technology. She has the blog Funky Brown Chick, which I love, and she's contributed to a whole slew of media outlets, CNN, NPR, Sirius, Time Out New York, and, and many, many more. And just, you guys, she is... Uh, so vibrant and generous and wise and hilarious. I have a feeling that the next episode's going to be a hoot. So we'll see you next time. Midwives are the sexiest. <laughs> Politics is the sexiest. Building on that, um, anyone who thinks about, at least to some extent, subverting heteronormative practices in and out of the bedroom is the sexiest. <laughs> <laughs>